folks, welcome inside the Parisi Palace, high above 3733 East Broadway. This is a live edition of the Jake Feinberg Show, comedy on Power Talk. Please go to our website, powertalk.live. Download our free app to your smartphone and stream all of our live local programming, including the Jake Feinberg Show. And we can't thank you enough for making us part of your day today. And what a treat on a Monday morning to... Go head into the sunshine with the bossa nova and the and the lilting vocals of Astrid Gilberto. Uh, unbeknownst to me, prior to uh, connecting with my guest, uh, this guy was playing trap drums in so many different settings, uh, coming from the uh, somewhat uh, barren landscape culturally of of, uh, of Pennsylvania. Uh, this cat wound up swinging. With the heaviest cats in all forms of music, never seem to be daunted by the settings, um, and uh, is still doing it today, uh, and is still uh, got the memo about being a good guy, and that probably more than anything else is the most important thing. Denny Sywell, welcome back to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thank you, Jake. The barren landscape of Pennsylvania. Uh, Lee, was it Lee Heighton? Was it Lee Heighton? Was it Lee? I, I just I remember asking you about bebop. You're like, you're like, you had polka bands and stuff, but there was no bebop going on there. No, no, no bebop at all. There were big bands, though. My dad played with the big bands. No, I don't want to. I'm not. Listen, I. And by the way, go Eagles. I'm not sure if you're an Eagles fan or not, but that that was an amazing Super Bowl. Oh, I was for that game. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. No, I hate. I mean, it was. I mean, Nick Foles is a UA grad. Uh, I mean, I thought he played the game of his life against Minnesota, but I guess he. I guess he had one more in store, man. That was unbelievable game. Um, it certainly was. Yeah. Fantastic. But I mean, you have been all around this world. Uh, I wanted to start with a with an audio clip. We have a game on this program called Name That Voice, and uh, but I I wanted I wanted you to listen to this, and then uh, and then we'll we'll break it down on the other side. Okay. TBS. Um, we had this sort of a meeting with CBS, and they said you guys really really need to 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 do a top 10 record because your album sales are not doing that well. And at that time, prior to the recording of that album, uh, we were on tour with Earth, Wind & Fire for about 11 weeks in Europe. And Indugo and I were very much inspired by Earth, Wind & Fire. Uh, spiritually, musically, um, we loved them to death. We hung out together for those 11 weeks. And, uh, and Dugo and I uh, had a little keyboard, and we wrote a lot of those tunes in our in our room in, take in me, various take me, hotels. Take Me With You, uh, Dance, Sister Dance, Tell Me Are You Tired. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we wrote those tunes because we were trying to reach out and do a uh, an album that would, would eventually get up on the charts, and we were so in, impressed with, with, all, with everything that Earth, Wind, and Fire was doing, and we did this wonderful record, and, and Jake, it, it, made a t it was a top ten album, so we achieved our gold. And, of course, Europa uh, had a lot to do with that as well. And can we I, didn't know you, what I, we... I want to ask you a question, though, because you're the... I mean, 
I always talk to the cats about you know you, you create hits when you're not trying to make a hit. I mean, I, that's what this that's what this was. Really, because you said that the the, yeah. the the company already said you better get in gear, so you knew you had to make a well, hit. Well, well, you do you do what you what we tried to do. It wasn't hits, Jake. It was music that we hoped the kids could relate to, but it, we didn't think for a moment it was going to be a hit. <laughs> Um, it, we what we tried to do was bring the band back to what everyone says their roots, you know, quote unquote. Um, I don't think any of us wrote anything that we thought was going to be a hit, but, but we were. Hoping. You have any idea who that is? I should know because he collaborated with Ndugu, but I don't. I'm just wondering if you ever collaborated with the, the great uh, Tommy Coster. That, that's Tommy, the keyboardist. Uh, no idea. Okay, so... Yeah, it, I'm drawing a blank here. And you know what? That's fine. Uh, Tom, Tommy is, uh, I mean, uh, wound up in San Francisco, uh, took Buddy Montgomery's place at one of these brothels, but then wound up with Santana. I mean, he's played with everybody. He played with Steve Smith. He's played with Billy... You know, he's a heavy, really heavy, beautiful cat. Right. Yeah, yeah, and 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 here's here's what I want to get at. It, it, again, he does mention Indugu, but I wanted to ask Denny: Was there ever a time? I thought I think this is so important because eleven week tour. Okay, first of all, that's like th- that. There was a vibrant touring circuit at that time, and here you had two guys ostensibly who were not partying really that much. You know, Indugu and Tommy were not into that. They were in their room. After a message from the company saying, and they were with Santana, I should—I don't think he made that clear, but they were with Carlos, so it was Santana right. and Earthwind. Okay, and 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 they're in they're in the hotel rooms on this tour with a keyboard, making up tunes that wound up on these albums, and they wound up getting. The, I mean, they wound up meeting their goal, and I was wondering with you if there was ever a time, whether it was with Wings or any other situation where. You wound up creating stuff on the road in the with somebody, in, in and and that wound up becoming uh, tunes on albums. You know, I mean, to me, it's like that's so visceral. Where you're you're feeding off that live energy every night. You're influenced by another band, and now you're creating stuff that wound up on Amigos and and, and things to bring back to the roots of of Santana. And I was like, boy, you know, I, on tour, I wonder if you had anything similar to that in your in your career. I, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of felt that was coming, but no. I mean, I mean, what was the t- what, like? Did you have what was the most creative time, or did you ever get a wake up call from the company? I mean, CBS is like you got to make a hit, you know. They were telling that, Santana that, you know, but you can't just make a hit. No, no. I mean, that much later in my career when I was I was doing some product producing and what have you. There was a little bit of that stuff. Uh, where there was dialogue with the record company. But when you're working with a guy like, well, Paul McCartney, he wrote all the songs. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So even if we sat around after the gig in the hotel room and messed around with stuff, uh, I just don't remember any of that stuff becoming an actual tune. And, and the, like, I've, I was only on the road with a few acts, you know, with, with uh, Astro Gilberto, with Rick Danko, um Joan Armour trading, and it was already an act, so there was no room for 
the band to sit around and, and come up with stuff. But I really commend Ndugu and Tommy for doing that because that's what the road is meant to do. It's such a boring place out there. You live for a two-hour show. I, I know, man. I know. percent of it is just traveling and then trying to find a decent meal. Uh, you know, the road is not nearly as glamorous as people say it is. Well, and it, it can also actually uh, eat you up, too. I mean, it can just be uh, an example. Oh, yeah. I, I, I mean, like, in, in essence, were you, you know, I mean, there were there are bands today that still adhere to, you know, uh, bus taking the buses and and uh, sort of going to these smaller venues, uh, not maxing out mon- monetarily. I mean, when you were with Paul, did did he have an adherence to? Would you guys stay at a when you were on tour? Would you wind up at a place for three four nights in a row, or was it more transient? I mean, I, I guess. This is where it leads in. Lenny White would talk to me about uh, going to see Art Blakey at the you know jazz workshop in San Francisco, and he was there for like a two week you know engagement. And so after that, you know, Lenny brought some friends, and they were like, "Yeah, this is great. I'm going to bring some more friends." And that's how you develop like a community in every city. And I'm just curious with McCartney, were you? What was the? Did you travel with in style? I mean, in theory, he had a lot of dough. He probably could have funded that. But I'm just curious what those tours look like. Oh, well, the, each one was different, put it that way. <laughs> but there was only one time that we spent more than one day in the same hotel, and that was in the south of France. We stayed at the Captain Thieves, the Eden Rock Hotel. Wow. One of the most expensive hotels in the world. And we stayed there for four or five days. And, uh, it took the rest of the tour to pay for it. <laughs> we all lost money on that. I, I, I'm ashamed to say this, but at the end of a 28-city tour, a two-and-a-half-month tour of Europe, sold-out venues, some as big as 10, 20,000, you know, uh, we lost money, and the band did not get paid anything. <laughs> I, I, okay, I, now, uh, as best you can, uh, for somebody who's, you know, bleeding through their life savings on the sacred journey as Jake Feinberg is, how the heck did you do that? How did you do that? I mean, that, that to me is, is, is unconscionable. (laughs) Well, it was the music. We were there for the music, you know, and uh, it was just so exciting. I mean, let me step back here. Go ahead. Because the first tour we went on was, was the British uh, university tour, which was an unannounced tour. No hotels, no gigs, nothing booked. Wow. We set out with a, uh, we had a 12-passenger transit van for the uh, the wives, the kids, the dogs, and the band, you know, Paul driving. And <laughs> this we had is a, awesome. A Hertz, had a Hertz rental truck with uh, our roadies, Ian and Trevor, and the gear. And, uh, you know, we go up to Paul's place. And we say, We're going on the road. Where are we going? I don't know. It was one of those things. So he, he said, where's Monique, by the way? I said, she's at home. And he said, oh, no, she's got to come along, too. So he calls her up. My wife is Monique. And he calls Monique, and he says, you know, get up here. We're, we're going to leave as soon as you get here. And she went, what? <laughs> so she had to get rid of our cat with the neighbor and all of this stuff. So anyway, she, she shows up in a cab, and we jump in the thing, and we go. We set out, and we went up north, and uh, 
we'd pull into a university someplace and the roadies would go in and say, hey, you got a place we could play like a lunchroom or something we can give it a concert today? No, not really. <laughs> well, we got Paul McCartney out there in the van. <laughs> And this so they'd come legendary. up and they'd look and Paul oh. would wave through, through through the van, you know, he said, oh, okay. So it was like 50p or something like that. Less, you know, It was like a dollar and a quarter to get in to see us. We only knew 11 songs. I was just listening to some CDs of that stuff some fans sent me. But uh, we knew 11 songs. Linda didn't even know our parts yet. or <laughs> We were such a new band. So we'd, we'd find a place to play. The roadies would set up the gear and we'd take the, the the 12 passenger transit van and go find a hotel and some of these places were not even two star <laughs> i i this is we blowing were, my mind wow oh man it was uh, paul always wanted to do that you know and we did that for 10 or 11 shows in a two week period i believe and they were totally unannounced and the press didn't get wind of it until Later on, during that, maybe around halfway through it, the press started looking out for us and putting feelers out to universities. Hey, these guys might be coming by. Let us know so we can cover it. And uh, it was tremendous. At the end of the night, we would uh, finish the show. We'd, we'd get in back into the van to go to our hotel, and the guy from the student union would come out with a box of money, and uh, and we'd open up the box of the take for the night, you know, and we and we pass it out one for you, one for you, one for you. <laughs> we all had these huge wads of one pound notes in our pockets, oh, you know. I, actually, you probably walked away with some. You you walked away making some money on that tour, I bet. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> there was no expenses. I mean, there was like two mics on the drums. We had like a a really archaic PA and everything. And, just had a little set of drums, and each guy had an amp. You know, it was like <laughs> the dogs. The dogs used to be in. The, we, we, I never forget pulling into a place where the dogs. Uh, Denny Lane had a dachshund, and uh, Paul had a, a, a what do you call those spotted dogs? A Dalmatian. Uh, Dalmatian. He had a Dalmatian. Lucky. And anyway, they hadn't seen each other for like a day or two, and. Because they were riding in different vehicles, we showed up at one location, <laughs> and it was like big, long steps up to a fancy hotel someplace up in the middle of England. And the dogs saw each other, went up, and they were jumping all over. Pretty soon, they started humping on the steps. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there were just so many beautiful, beautiful moments on that tour. You know, being in a in a crappy little hotel room with a a dunce for a desk, a night desk clerk coming up with a, we, the rooms were so small that we'd all hang out in a room and just play and sing and uh, carry on after the show. And when I just, this little guy named Cyril, I'll never forget him with thick glasses and pudgy old English guy. He came up with one of those little kids sand buckets and, uh, the door was open. That's the only way we could get everybody in the room. So he comes into the room and he says, so one of you guys got that uh, white, black and white, that Dalmatian dog, that dog? He says, yeah, Paul says, yeah, that's mine. He says, well, you're going to have to clean it up. He shat in the hall. <laughs> he shat in the hall. <laughs> There's a name for a song. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was it was. Then the second tour we did was the European tour where 
we didn't, like I said, we stayed at the Eden Rock. We stayed in castles. We stayed with barons. and We, did, we stayed in five-star wasn't good enough at that point. We stayed in places where only Paul McCartney could stay. And, uh, and we had a bus that it was a double-decker English bus. Let me just, let me ask you something. So, sorry, you, you, when I, I do want, this is so important. Uh, when you were having a ball with the families and the dogs and the, these, you know, college university tour, this tour, this first tour, I mean, it was really, your generation, I, I cannot really understand how you must feel about how we have gotten to this point where my girls, like my daughters and younger generations, they look at music in a lot of ways now, unless you're really a deep seeker, and they're like, yeah, I want to be Justin Bieber because he's famous and he makes a lot of money, as opposed to making right. really good music. I mean, that's, yeah. t t like, I, I realize that the cost of living was ridiculously low compared to what it is today, but I, I still am confounded by was it just the mentality when you guys were there was it, it was just you hadn't cut a record yet had you you just were putting a band together when you went on the uh, on the university tour no i think we, we i think we cut wildlife already you cut wildlife so you had but this was really about like when no, you i'll tell you what yeah. here yeah i can clarify this yeah, go ahead. because wildlife was just the four of us denny lane the two denny's paul and linda so and then we realized we were going to go on the road. So Paul put the feelers out to get a kind of a lead guitar player, somebody that could play lines and stuff like that. And uh, we needed a fifth member at that point. So we were rehearsing in London, and the roadies brought Henry McCulloch by, who was uh, playing with Joe Cocker in the Grease Band, wow. and, and wow. then other things. He was a, a session guy and what have you. So Henry showed up and. Uh, he just fit in beautifully because his his attitude was so uh, he was really playful. He was very bluesy. Um, you know, he was just a, a right fit for the band. After after ten minutes, we all looked at each other and said, "Yeah, he's the guy." So they looked no further than that, and Henry joined the band. Then we went on the British tour. Um. At that time, was that was that like you said? You said uh, Paul wrote uh, uh, all the tunes, but w would you say like in that early stages of of that band was that the time where there was the most intercollaboration amongst the cats? Like when you guys were just all hanging together, and because a lot of the music, like you said, you only had eleven songs. You didn't have a deep bag of tunes. You know, this wasn't like you know oh. pulling out the American Songbook <laughs> with Zoot or something. You know, <laughs> no, but it, it was. The template was when we got to rehearse before going into Abbey Road to record Wildlife. You know, we were, Paul always asked for suggestions, anything we could do to make the music better, you know. So the door was wide open, and, uh, and we just tried a lot of different stuff. But, you know, he usually comes up with a song that's, that's so good and so complete that if you just find the right part for the song, that's creative enough for a side musician to, to be involved. Absolutely. With a, a, a absolutely. Right yeah, absolutely. But then in the studio, I mean, we were, we lived like we were still in the transit van. I mean, we, <laughs> we, 
We it was everybody grab a handful of faders. Your assignment is here. When we get to the bridge, we raise this, and so the even the mixes that went till six o'clock in the morning sometimes. The mixes were a performance of the band because everybody had their assignment. This before flying faders and automation. And so when when we were in there mixing our music, you know, everybody was there, man. Whether you're half asleep or not, you know, and uh, absolutely, everybody took a role in everything we did as a band. That's what was so unique about it, you know. And you know, we we all thought that uh, what we are doing is so. Uh, so important right now in time after the breakup of the Beatles, the biggest band ever known to history, it's so important that we have a a real a task to to make this thing good, you know. And it was uh it was that that kept us involved. I'm I'm certain of that, you know. Well, I mean, th- and and what was your if you could talk a little bit about, I mean, it's just been so cathartic for me not being a, a, an aficionado with the Beatles and, you know, maybe liking a couple of their albums, just but never diving that deep into it just to hear just in general. I, I, I want to give props to Jim Quesk and Jug Band because that cat was way out front, too. But the the in terms of the songwriting, the originality, uh, you when was the first time did, did you get to hang with Ringo when the Beatles were still together or and what did his you know a lot of people would say he didn't have great the greatest chops in the world but his feel was just uncanny I just I'm curious about when you when you first connected with Ringo no I I, I met Ringo out here in LA many many years many years later, later. After I yeah. left so what was what was but, magical but, to the what was right off, yeah go ahead right off the top of my head I want to I want to say first of all that Ringo is one of the finest drummers that ever lived uh, and it's uh, I don't care about chops I care about the way he played the song right. he played the song better than any drummers ever played the song the other guys that came along and learned how to play the song were guys like Jeff Beccaro and many Keltner there were, there were many but Ringo really inspired so many more drummers than just about anybody on the planet and you don't need chops uh, to do that. Although, if you listen carefully to a lot of those records, uh, he had some a serious set of chops too. And if you watch the film eight days a week, he played with an intensity that was just unbelievable. I see Ringo once a week anymore out here in L.A. We get together a lot. And after I saw eight days a week, I went up and I told him, man, I had ne- Ron Howard found footage of the Beatles in those early days that was so good. And I just showered, I showered Ringo with all these great compliments, you know, but he was a drummer's drummer that, that did a lot more than just play the drums. Did he and McCartney, did they, did they, create new were they a a very inventive rhythm section or did they just lock it i'm just you know again not being a guy who's throwing the beatles on but at the time when they plugged in were they a different kind of rhythm unit as it related to what you might consider to be psychedelic rock or just rock music no i think they i think they came from that skiffle era exactly skiffle skiffle 
Yeah, you had to grow up in Liverpool to understand from whence they came. You know? <laughs> whence they came. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, so they had that a different background than us. And, and you know, uh, borrowing money from mom to go buy the latest single that came out from the U.S. and all of their early influences that, that created what they later turned into the, the Silver Beatles than the Beatles. You know, I mean, it was just... It was amazing, the transformation and the way that whole thing came about. And it, uh, I love the fact that Paul and John were both art students, and they were always looking to uh, take it out there, take it further than, than anybody had taken it out. And I think Ringo, Paul used to talk about when, uh, when Pete Best, when they were suggested that they get a different drummer because they were getting so good, and uh, um, they thought, he had a car, or no, wait, did he have a car? But anyway, they just <laughs> considered him, uh, you know, they, they they thought Ringo was just amazing when they first met him. Uh, he had some attributes that, that none of them seemed to have, and, and he was on top of it and everything. And uh, they just loved him, and, and he fit in so beautifully. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm going to step back again, because when you talk about the Beatles, like I was a New York jazz guy. My wife used to bring her singles from when she was, she lived in England in the early 60s. She went to school there and she had all the British singles, the Beatles singles, but the French version, she'd buy them in France, I guess. But uh, she'd put her records on in our apartment in New York and I'd come home and I'd say to her, hey, take that crap off, man. Let's listen to some real music. <laughs> so I wasn't a Beatles fan. I'm in there making records and jazz records, early pop and stuff, but I was not a Beatles fan until one year Joe Beck invited me to go over to Jackie and Roy. Jackie oh, and Roy. I love called. those cats, man. So we went over to their house for Thanksgiving. Oh. I can't remember what year that was, but the White Album had just come out. Right. And, we, you know, we had a few sips of this, a few sips of yeah, that, right. a few this. And uh, right. put, they put the, the White Album on, and all of a sudden, I I was given a rebirth. <laughs> <laughs> from that from that point on, I was uh, I couldn't get enough, and I'm sure that that was the major influence. The first time I I heard uh, Ringo playing the song and being as cre more creative than most jazz drummers are allowed to be, to be honest. And uh, uh, at that point, I, you know, got into Rubber Soul. I got into a lot of their music. And uh, I'm sure that that uh, really launched my, jet, uh, my, my transition from jazz to rock. That influenced me greatly. So, so much running through that, my I mean, head I, right now. I mean, I, I, I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, I was, I wanted to ask you, though, did you, this is fascinating because I was like, you're credited with playing with Donovan on a few things. And I'm like, did you, I'm like, I had this flash last night. It was just out of the blue. I'm like, I just had this flash of you playing live with Donovan at the whiskey a go, go, but I could be way wrong about it. I mean, when, how did, yeah, no, I, I only, did I you only play one time? Did you, right after, I'm just curious when you were, Andrew, when you were, when you started to go to, with, with, uh, with, uh, with Paul on these on these tours, I know you were clearly 
locked into the tours, but did you wind up ever doing any studio gigs or did you connect with any British cats uh, and no. play any record? No, never. No, short answer is no. We were working all the time. Uh, we would we'd either be rehearsing, hanging out at the house, uh, press, media, coverage. You know, Paul wanted all, all of us wings to be known like the Beatles were. I dig. And That's they beautiful. put on a campaign to really get us individually out there in the press huh. so that people knew who we were. And there was it was just it was twenty four seven. We were at the mercy of whenever they wanted to do something, the phone would ring and we would do it. And uh, it was okay. It was it was it was fine with with us, you know. Uh, I did miss one of the reasons I left the band was I missed going to work uh, on a daily basis and seeing a new creative challenge in front of me. You know, like here's some new artists play a new song, and I, I get to use my creativity to come up with the the parts to make that something special so i did miss that throughout the time i was over there with paul i was going to ask you though maybe we just sort of vetted this with your uh with the jackie and roy um thanksgiving white album uh, hang but but could you talk about the impact that the british invasion you know the, the john mayalls and the the keith hartleys and the and the you know the class like did the British invasion have a profound impact on, on on sort of taking you from the, the the post bop portal to more blues rock. I'm ashamed to say this, but no, it didn't. Okay, so 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 would you say that it possibly was the White Album experience that got? I mean, that was really that was the that was the transit. Yeah. It was, yeah. Wow. And how, in the, how those simple. days, I mean, I was I was making records. There was this kid named Gary Bonner, who wrote uh, "Happy Together" for the Turtles, and uh, <laughs> wow. we'd 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 go over to Aura Sound on Fifty Second Street. You know, it was just another date. You know, run into. We were doing four or five sessions a day, three hour sessions. You know, one of them would be Gary Bonner, and then. We'd go in and we'd cut some tracks with these guys, and uh, they'd be usually session guys with, with with one guy from an old group or something like that. Or and uh, geez, uh, there was a, a band that I was signed to. I don't even remember. Russ Regan at Uni Records signed me to a band called Jeremiah. Oh my! I found the record the other day. I don't even remember who was on it or what it. But was you like. wait, wait. You found the LP? Are the accompanists listed on this LP? I mean, this is this this is. I got to find this immediately. Jeremiah, my wife's going to look at it. But, all right, uh, all right, it's fine. It, I mean, this is unbelievable. It, uh, well, there were so many in those days that I David and Alexander and uh, that that wrote something in Pacheco and. Oh, I have that queued up. Pacheco and Alexander, seventy-one. I at first I was like. It, this is so funny because at first I was like, um, I was like, oh my God. I'm like, I can't wait to talk to, uh, uh, I, I, I got confused that I thought it was Johnny Pacheco. I'm like, he was working for Mascucci and Fanya Records. <laughs> uh, that may be one area no, you no, never no. dipped your toe into, though. That mean, never maybe did the Latin thing. No. Yeah. Well, except with Astrude. And oh, of course. Right. Well, I mean, the that's, yeah, I mean, that's, <laughs> oh man, unbelievable. So, so the... Scrooge was one of my favorites to work with of all times. Say it again. I think Scrooge. We called her Scrooge. Yeah. Oh, my, yeah. Oh. Scrooge. 
I think I think I'm still in love with her. You know, she was just amazing. Yeah, I mean that the, the um uh so uh, d- talking to Denny Sywell today, like I want you to talk about um just in today's time uh about when you talk about your philosophy as it relates to music when you're playing with bag or you're playing in in any setting um is it just is it about touching people's hearts for you and this is the question do you have to get off yourself first not in a selfish way but do you have to to find that that space so that you are in a position to connect viscerally with the audience raise their consciousness and then that can come back to you on the bandstand what is your priority as it relates to music and do you have to get yourself locked in before you can get the audience locked in well i don't think i ever stood at the audience really <coughs> excuse me i still got this cold uh, when we're making music when when that creative part the fun part of hearing songs for the first time and coming up with the part that's going to make that as good as possible I don't think the audience comes into that at all. Now, maybe subconsciously you're thinking, you know, this, this would be great. It might be easily uh, accepted by the audience if we did it this way or something. So maybe there's some subconscious stuff in there. Or to use a, a, a lick that was, was kind of like something that Ringo did on a record. So there was some subconsciously, there was some stuff in there. But I really believe that that's the unique thing of being a studio musician, especially in those days. When they would come in with a song, you'd say to yourself, now, okay, there's, there's three or four sections to this song. How can I come up with a part for each section wow. that makes this a vehicle that makes it one solid piece of music? And that was, uh, that's what I really enjoyed doing the most. And, and still, to this day, that's, that's the thing that gives me the most pep out of what I do is being able to create, create something that really means something and, and will last over time. Do you still, do you still feel like, uh, like in the live, um, yeah, the studio setting is one thing, uh, in the live setting though, where you're, I mean, like Art Blakey, your, 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 your dear friend who approached you on the sidewalk after Pookie's pub Right. You know, I mean, that guy was like that. His philosophy was like, you know, my job is to wash away the dust of everyday life for the patrons that come in to to see my music. And but a lot of cats will tell me they have to put them. They have to get in the right frame of mind or they're not going to be able to project the kind of feel. I mean, Kenny Barron was making me cry the other week when at his apartment. He's like, I just want to touch hearts. I'm just looking to touch hearts. And again, you're talking yeah. about a guy who's just like playing like old school man bop you know like beautiful and it's like but it's like is Denny Sywell's job like do you are you into do I mean you're not bashing you're not like bashing your way into 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 glory you know I mean don't you want to touch people's hearts oh of course of course but when you make the music as as well as you can make it that touches people's hearts but it just reminded you just reminded me of a line I wish I knew Remember who said it? There was a line around New York in those those days that said, "You're only as good as your last take," <laughs> and that's pretty damn deep, you know. Explain to the so, regular people out I, there what that what it means to someone like yourself who was in the jingles in the studio scene. I mean, 
I mean, it's similar to what people would say about live music where you, you know, you might have 40 clunkers, except you have that one night that makes up for all of it. But what explain what yeah. that what that line meant uh, to the to, to, to the well, cats. When they hired us to come in and make a record or a jingle or anything that we were recording, uh, you got to go in and give them like 110 percent every time. And that line is you're only as good as your last take is like every take. I don't care if it's four o'clock in the morning and you've been there for three days. You're still only as good as you can play that last take, you know. And uh, that was the whole purpose. There's there's a million guys waiting for your job. Uh, and they called you. They called you because of what you have. And so it was just a great mantra for me to remember uh, you give every take your all. There was there was no like, ah, well, I'm tired of this song. Let me just play the part and go home. There was never, never any of that. Hmm. I mean, talking to Denny Sywell here on the Jake Feinberg show. Um, I, I, it's it's going to come out now because I've been wait chomping at the bit, and I need the entire story. Um. I found I, I, there's it, there has been a tattered copy at this uh, local music shop. Um, picked it up for two bucks. Wasn't totally ex- expecting to be totally uh, moved by it. Um, blown away by this mercurial rhythm section of Denny Sywell and Chrissy Stewart, 1975 oh with T- Keith and Donna Godshall. And I'm saying to oh, myself, yeah. how? In the name, and, and and Denny, I'm telling you, <laughs> some of these tunes, and I'm really bummed, they're not on YouTube, which is why the album, I still have, I have the album, and I'm, I can't really, part. I don't know if you have a copy of it, but dude, there are a couple of tunes on there that are so righteously awesome, and I'm like, Denny, I need the entire story on this yeah. On how this came to be, because I I know I mean we already vetted Callaway with the with the truck and everybody was you know the the, the Joe Beck right. you know you you were obviously yeah I'm like did it happen then when when did this and 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 Chrissy Stewart are, are, is that individual still with us as well? He is. He is. I need to talk uh, to him. I need. I I I I, I, I I'm in, I'm obsessed. I need to know exactly how this went down. He's one of my dearest friends in life. And oh, by the way, thank Henry. you for helping me up with Neapolitan and and Radke. Those guys are me- salt of the earth. We've had, been oh, having great. a ball, man. Anyway, go ahead. I, I, Keith and Don, oh, break when, it down. When, when here's how here, that that whole story goes like this: yeah. When we left Wings, you know, I didn't know what to do. I didn't want to go back to the session world because it was tough. I mean, you know, the the long days, uh, the extracurricular sure. stuff that we were doing <laughs> to stay awake to. Uh, you know, I just didn't want to fall back into that, and I really felt like I'd blown a big opportunity. I had nothing to show for three, four years with the, one of the top bands in the world. I really had nothing to show for it, and I said, Let, let's put a band together and, and do... Henry and I were very close in Wings, and we both left around the same... I left two weeks after he did, wow. but uh, we bonded in Wings, and I thought Henry is really a unique talent, so... After we both sorted the band, uh, Henry was coming up with some ideas, making a solo record, and I took him over to meet Robert Stigwood in London and stuff like that. So nothing really happened. And then I, I did a record with Donovan at that time for Andrew Oldham. 
And then I said, I'm going back home. So we went back to New York. I gathered up some uh, gathered up some thoughts. What do I want to do with my life? I got some some people told me it's very important what you do right now because you have high visibility. And uh, I said, well, let's use that visibility and put a band together. Henry and I'll put together a band. So made a few phone calls, and a friend in Chicago helped us out. He, uh, he, uh, Henry, Mick Weaver, uh, organ guy, a piano player from YMDK Frog, oh my and God. Christy Stewart from Spooky Tooth. That was Henry brought those three over, and we went to Chicago, oh. where I'd been doing a lot of work out there. I produced an artist for this fellow, Bill Young, uh, and the artist's name was Bill Quaitman. He was a, a Clive Davis find. Yeah, that's when so you that's I, when you connected with Radke, right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Got it. So I've been flying out for Bill Young. He would fly me in. We'd do the big United Airlines campaigns. We'd do a bunch of commercials. And then we'd do a couple of uh, demos for his artist, Bill Quaitman, <laughs> and sometimes do a live gig even. And Radke was playing drums with Quaitman at the time. But I, here, they, you know, they just thought I was something special. I <laughs> yeah, they did. of course they did. But Radke made a fortune doing the uh, all of those jingles out there for Bill Young and uh, the, the Chicago did. I mean, that was a huge jingle house out there. Dude, it was anyway, rocking uh, out. So, it was rocking. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so, so, so we went to Chicago initially to to cut some demos, and somehow or another. I still don't remember how this happened. This is important. It would be really helpful if you remembered. But go ahead. Go ahead. Well, yeah. I don't remember how the connection came. It might have been through Bill that Elliot Mazur, this producer, Elliot Mazur, yeah. uh, lives, lives in San Francisco, oh. and he wanted, wanted to know if we'd be interested in coming out and working with him on some records. And... Uh, we could use his facility to put the band together to rehearse and all that. And uh, God bless Bill Young because we had no money. I think Chuck Blackwell gave Henry something like five thousand pounds to uh, <laughs> to put this band together that we had no name for, no nothing. Can for. you tell me Henry's full name, and by so, the way? Just tell me Henry's full name. Henry Lichen Campbell McCulloch. <laughs> Henry McCulloch. Gotcha. Okay. Cool. Yeah. And Henry, God bless him, he he left us a couple of years ago. He had a massive heart attack. Mm. By the time they responded, he was brain dead and, and lived four years like his poor wife, Josie. had a uh, She was such an angel, and she had a horrible time nursing him those I mean, she years. Kept, she, kept him on a vent, she kept him on a ventilator or something? No, but uh, he was, yeah, it was, it was rough. I mean... It was really rough. I'd speak to him uh, every couple of weeks or so. We'd call, and pretty soon he couldn't speak anymore. And wow. I could, I could tell you a whole. I could go into Henry forever. He was one of my dearest friends in life, and I just, I loved him beyond, you know. But that band we put together was, we, we finally, we were only in Chicago a short time. We went to San Francisco, and we started rehearsing over at Elliot's studio, and uh, there was a man named Gary Haber there, and that's. Gary was a, he just passed away a few years ago. He was a, a business manager and he ran Elliot's studio called His Master's Wheels. And they were connected with Crosby, Stills, Nash, Young, The Dead, The Band, all of these 
the, there was a lot of interconnections with a lot of my favorite groups and stuff. And I think it was through Gary that the connection, uh, it was either Gary or Elliot. They were closely associated with, with uh, the dead and Ron Rakow, who was running their record company and stuff. That's and so right. When, That's right. Keith and, Keith and Donna wanted to do a record, and they heard that I was in town because they used Purdy on the other half of that record. I, no, I want to be clear. I want to be very clear. They they uh, uh, they they used Purdy and John Con on yeah. one track, and then there's another track with uh, the engineer Bill Wolf and and on bass and a drummer, and the rest of it is Denny Sywell and Chrissy St- oh, and okay. Stewart, and it is I, I was I can't stand full disclosure. <clears throat> I cannot listen to. Uh, the dead with Don. I can't. I don't like the singing, but I. I, I and I was, so I was very apprehensive, and I bought the album strictly because of Sywell. And this whole album right. blew, blew me away. It blew me away. It. 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 it uh, now I have to go back and listen. To well, it. you better. If you don't have a copy, I'm going to foist it on you. Because this. I mean, you can't find the cl- tracks on YouTube. I have a tattered copy, but it's like you're playing like. It is, and I also dig the idea where that's like an Orin Keep news. Whoever made that recommendation to be like. You know, Orrin Keep News would be doing an album with some mercurial guitar player, and he's like, and you know, the guy, the, the guitar player's got an idea of who he wants to bring in as a rhythm section, but then Orrin's like, well, you know, actually, Hampton Hawes is in town, and uh, and Dugu and, and Henry right. Henry Franklin are in town. Why don't you use them? Boom. So it's like, yeah. it, there's that that spontaneity there, and I and I dig, and the Dead were yeah. always doing. So I mean, but I, I mean, so you get the call, and you go to Mazer Studio. It was either through Gary. Gary Haber, right. God rest well, he was he was my my mentor in life, my business agent for since 1975, or, or Elliot, you know. But the two of them worked hand in hand. So they said, well, yeah, Denny's around. Yeah, you get him, and he's got a great band out here. If you need a bass player, Chrissy could be the. So we got the call, and we 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 drove over to Stinson Beach. He lived up on Stinson Beach Absolutely. in this beautiful, like an old A-frame, and this. The record company made, built a studio in the house for him, and we'd go up there. There'd be a fire going, and uh, you know it was just like this really homey, woodsy Mill Valley kind of setting. And, uh, there'd be some, there'd be some Heinekens, some uh, Marching Powder, some Maylocks. <laughs> Dude, I'm telling you, I didn't. I've interviewed all the ca- like Peter Rowan. He said it was a a shiftless, I mean, they'd wake up in the morning barefoot, they'd walk up to Garcia's, they'd be playing bluegrass, get high. But, like, there yeah. were, like, there were like outlaws from Texas coming in being like, yo, can you hold my, my furniture here? You know, it was really renegade-style <laughs> stuff. Dude. But, yeah, I mean, very, very hip. Trip. Very hip. It was a trip. I mean, just to drive up there, I remember I had, a, I had an old 1971 Thunderbird. We called it the rock and roll Thunder Chicken. And <laughs> we... We lived in Sausalito, and we'd drive up to Stinson Beach, and we'd we'd go hang out till the wee hours of the morning. You know, they just, it was definitely not like a New York pace record. You know, you get there, you might hang out for three or four hours before you played a note. You know, and uh, everybody was just getting right. <laughs> I love know? this. Dude. I love it. Everyone's just getting hanging out, dude. Getting the vibes right. You know. <laughs> Was anybody was, was anybody in that? I, I have to believe the answer is probably no. But I mean, was there anybody who was antsy to just 
like hit like start hitting or or it just was like well we're just everyone was having a good time or i mean to me it was like it's always fascinating like where you walk in and all of a sudden people's tempos are so different uh than others but maybe you know i mean did anybody have a problem just waiting for you know for three hours to to hit not really i mean we were we were doing the only other thing we were doing was putting the band together and doing a lot of solo records we did uh, a bunch of records for Elliot uh, at his studio there, but this was just a project that was going on, and because there was no record companies there, there was no studio hours to be uh, concerned with. You know, they built the studio in his home; he mm. could take forever to do it, and so nobody was antsy. We didn't really have a lot going on. Uh, I should, I should just Elliot. We did a bunch of records up there. We did a record with Rab Noakes. I was just gonna, I'm, I'm I'm like looking at this stuff. I'm like, where? So this cat, yeah, this cat Rab Noakes. Who the heck Rab? Yeah. I just want to. Did you get a chance to, um, like, was did everybody hit in at the same time for this uh, Keith and Donna album, or did Garcia like? Did you get a chance to play with Jerry and hang with him? Yeah, I played. I played with Jerry. I just did some live shows with Jerry and Merle Saunders. Which was great. Wait, 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 You are not going to get away with. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? When did these go down? I just got, I just got a call, and Jerry said, "Hey, you want to play Saturday night at the Great American Music Hall?" Oh my! Yeah, sure. So wait a minute. I just not to geek out here, but I mean, this is essentially like seventy-five-ish kind of area thereabouts. Yeah. It was ju- it was uh, so great American John Con you Merle and Jerry just a quartet or was Martin Fierro playing or is, was that Hey, I'm lucky I can remember where I was. I can't believe you got Those the call. Some- uh, yeah, I know they were hazy days. Yeah. I just want to tell you, man, you're playing. There's, I'm going to get these tracks and I'm going to tell you the, the specific tracks. They're freaking. I, I, I'm very, I, I've become huge Donna and Keith fans since this album, mainly because of the rhythm section of Sywell and, and Stewart. This album cooks. But then Whatever you, happened to Donna? Is she still alive? I know. Donna, uh, Donna, Donna, Donna is absolutely uh, uh, keeper, keeper of the flame. I mean, she, she's, uh, you know, she's, she, she definitely shows up on a, on a, on a, on a rare occasion with the, the new dead band and uh she has her own band i did interview uh, her brother oh, okay. brian keith was uh actually an incredible musician um to his credit he was a very good keyboard player he was and that he was, was he was really amazing yeah and i mean that was a what a pig pen died before keith i mean it's like a, you don't want to be the piano player in that band you <laughs> did. <laughs> well but the other thing is like i mean he really got it got to the point like after that was sort of the beginning of the end uh, in 75, but by, I mean, 78 or 79, I mean, he was just, for all intents and purposes, he was just a carcass on the bandstand. I mean, he just had, he, and then eventually yeah. he drove off a, a cliff. But Noakes, I'm looking here. Oh, so, I didn't know. Yeah, well, oh. he, yeah, that was 1980s. But no, Donna's still doing it. Um, um, and that period of time was really interesting because through Barry, uh, through Gary and Elliot again, I was asked to have a meeting with uh, with Bob Weir to produce a solo album for him. Are you kidding and me? I remember we, we we had some talks and nothing ever. He was building his studio, 
and it it was going to be complete in nine months or something like that. And uh, and and we talked about it. And then I moved to L.A. The band, our band fell apart, and uh, I moved down to L.A. because I was later on that year I was flying down to L.A. to to go on to work. There wasn't enough work to keep me going in San Francisco, so I got tired of getting on a plane. The band fell apart. I'll tell you all about that later. But we were doing records with Rab Noakes. We did Juice Newton. We yep. did a great guy named Andy Fairweather Lowe who played with Clapton. See these? Uh, many, you're telling me years. that none of these. So uh, th- these cats are British cats, right? I mean, but you, but you did them in the states, is what yeah. you, you did. Yeah, because like Brown yeah. Brown, Brown well, Nagel Elliot spent. A, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Elliot was a bit of a. a he loved all the Brit stuff, you know, and uh, the Brits and the band. That's that was Elliot's background. Wow, and also Joe Nash, but you know, and and uh, he just fell in love with my playing and just thought he wanted. And then the last thing we did. In uh, at his master's wheels in San Francisco was the Janis Joplin, the farewell song, uh, which was really a trip. I could spend an hour on that. No, but, we're going. Uh, we're going to get. It. I don't even want to get go to there right now. But I'm, I'm just going to read oh off yeah, some names I, here. We got Andy Fairweather, every Andy Fairweather Low, Mike McGear, Spider Diving, Mike McGear, yeah. Spider Diving, Mike McGear, uh, Melanie, uh, 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 an album called Madruga, Madrugada. Madrugada, and then Michael yeah. Diabo, Diabo, Broken Rainbows. Oh, Michael Dabo, Dabo, yeah, I remember him. That that was done at his master's wheels, I think. I mean, yeah. this is a, the most mercurial time. And I, I, just going back for a minute, and when you were talking about McCartney, what I love, like a typical, uh, even though he didn't really know it, I mean, like a jazz leader wanting the accompanist to get that press so that the band would become like the Beatles. Did you also, um, well, I mean, did you get, did you, did you, did you receive royalties for, for tunes? Were you credited as writers or was all McCartney? No, it was all McCartney. Okay. So that's why you didn't have any money after those years with the band really, basically. Well, that's a long story, but we were all supposed to be shareholders in the profits made by wings and, I was told later on in life that Wings was the biggest selling band in the 70s. And we had nothing to show for it because of the Beatles lawsuit when Paul had to sue the other three Beatles to, to prove to them that, that Alan Klein was not doing them a service at all. The judge looked at it and he says, you're absolutely right, Mr. McCartney, and we're going to put all of Apple's funds in a court receivership for three and a half years or something that receivership lasted and no money that came into apple went out so his uh, i think even his songwriters or royalties were affected but we were a very poor band uh, i was there we had no secretary we had an office with a phone and finally they hired a girl to answer it <laughs> I, I i love this. this i'm so happy i don't know i mean i uh, our th- weekly checks used to come monthly sometimes, and our weekly checks were very weak. <laughs> <laughs> so I they're mean, really, had, I mean, this is, this is amazing. Have, yeah, go ahead. I used to have to fly to New York to do some jingles so I could pay my American Express bill so we could eat out in a restaurant once in a while. This is so... I'll never I, forget taking... One night, Nick and I, my, my wife, Nick Monique, you know, we took... We said, Paul and Linda, come on, let's go to... We want to take you guys to dinner for a change. 
So right. we took him to a place in London called Le Gavroche, a very nice French restaurant. And we show up and we, at the end of the meal, I take my American Express card out to pay for it. They said, sorry, sir, we don't take American Express. <laughs> Paul had to pay for dinner. <laughs> ah, I, yeah, no, I, I love that feeling where you're like doing it for the right reasons and the other person winds up yeah. paying for it anyway. So, I mean, the, the thing is, yeah. you know, I mean, through it all, you were busy and sometimes not as busy yeah. as you'd like to be, but you weren't, it wasn't, it, it wasn't, again, things were tied up because of greed or malpractice. You never, you weren't living comfortably at, at all. I mean, you weren't, you weren't like living the high life at that I'll point. Tell you, I live in a basement apartment in Sydney Place uh, in South Ken. It was furnished. It had one bedroom. I mean, it was soulful. It was soulful. Mm. The guys used to come over to my place because it felt like a place where they could drop their ashes on the floor and nobody would give a shit, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it was really soulful, man. And I had like a little a little TV. I bought a cheap stereo. I, I went to the bank around the corner to borrow some money to buy a used car. I had an old Mercedes 230SL. I don't know how the hell I man- manufactured that, but... It was, uh, you know, we'd make monthly payments to the bank on, on our rent-a-car almost. <laughs> it, was a, it was a joke, man. And uh, we were, I don't know how we lived, to tell you the truth. We lived on so little money. It was, it was under $200 a week in those days. But it was fun. And, your wife, wife, and your wife was with you every supported. step of the way. I mean, that's the other thing that's so, just so like, I mean, this is like my man, and all the other superficial crap doesn't always work out that way. But well, I'm, so when you look at it this way, I mean, when I started working at the half note, that only paid a hundred dollars a week. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, and that was cracking me up too because I, I have this. I just transcribed this 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 uh, that thing where you're talking about going to Japan with Astrud with with uh, Art Koenig and and uh, and Mar- Mariano, and then you know, but yeah. it's like. And even the cats that were running the half note, they were they were counting. They're like, oh, uh, uh, Denny, you had three meatball subs tonight, so that you know, it's yeah. thirty bucks. Right. You know, I mean, you couldn't get away and with every anything. Drink counted too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's really. But I think yeah. Astrid might have been three hundred a week or something like that when I toured Japan for three hundred a week, and we we're wearing sport coats every night. Man, it was a. Uh, we stayed in. Uh, probably two or three star hotels we couldn't wait to get on stage every night it was just wonderful now maybe charlie mariano must have got more money but uh, we were just side men that that earned a a minimal fee i mean jesus it was it was nothing um i want to read this this quote to you and then uh and then have you extrapolate on it and how it affected you being that you also were a stone jazzer coming up and um this is from my third interview with keltner he said um i ended up at sammy davis jr's house and uh and levon helm and i hung out for a couple of days i would watch the band play it was extraordinary he was playing these old drums and he was playing real interesting patterns on the hi-hat he pull up his right hand from the hi-hat as he came down on the snare drum the backbeat I thought yep. that was amazing, and it sounded different. It took away the sound of the metal with the drum and at the same time from the hi-hat. And then his singing was just mesmerizing. He's one of the great singers of all time. 
some people would call him a stylist, but you could not get enough of his singing or any of the, or any of the songs. They were all incredible singers. This is the important part. Yep. He goes, we were talking a lot, and at one point I said to him, man, I w if I could just hit one tom-tom and make it sound in the right spot the way you do, I would trade all my chops for that. He said, oh, no, Jimmy. Yeah. If I could just play those damn little roles that you do, I say, Levi, yeah. I'll trade you. And that's what Kellner said. He goes, after that, I completely changed. He, this is what this is the most important part. He goes, after that, I completely changed as a drummer. It wasn't anything I was really conscious of. It didn't hit me. It just started happening. And then I realized as it was happening, that's what happened. I wasn't interested in playing a lot of stuff anymore like I was. I was always messing with my chops, trying to get fast and play a lot of different stuff. It just went away. Yep. I just kept wanting to hear Levon's feel when I played. Um, that's Levon. That's Levon. That's for me. It was Ringo. For for, for Keltner, it was Levon. So tell I me, had, explain, explain, explain. Okay, so yeah, talk about that experience. Well, maybe you already we, we did with Ringo, but that that to me was like fundamentally it was like Keltner's like, I just want to feel that. I don't. Want, I'm not going to be so busy anymore. Well, it goes back to that transition from, see, I was there in New York during the transition when, when pop music or rock music was becoming accepted in TV commercials and accepted in the norm. And, and we, we, we'd start out with a stick and a brush, boom, chicken, boom, chicken, boom, you know, all that simple stuff. And then, then all of a sudden you'd, you'd hear these records where guys that weren't studio musicians they were in a band and and how they approached it so it was a different head right you got a different head from uh from being that jazz drummer all of a sudden you take away 90 percent of it and just play the meat and potatoes that's left and make it feel good then the phone started ringing it's funny how that happened <laughs> <laughs> as, well like you know like yeah go ahead started understanding that and that's what would leave on especially yet he could play intricate patterns like jimmy said uh he could play intricate patterns while he was singing at the same time he was a freak of nature levon elm it was he made One it look easy too things. too he made it look oh, so easy well it was musical right it was musical if anybody played for the song look at some of those youtube clips on on levon the way he would uh, uh, he would make up his parts and, and how he put a drum fill in between his vocals and stuff. They're the most interesting thing that I think I've ever seen on YouTube. <laughs> I mean, I like, mean, you I know what I mean? Like, I mean, rest his soul. I mean, the other, the, the cat that just popped into my mind when you talked about feel good and meat and potatoes, uh, it was, and a guy who was playing and all, it was Donald McDonald. I mean, we talked about him in set one. Um, my, favorite, my favorite player ever. Ever, I mean, dude, I'm I'm listening to my like Mount Airy. Drummer. There's an album called Mount Airy, okay, and it's Weisberg, Russell, George. This was like a Catskill, like country. They do uh, uh, they do Rag Mama Rag. It's from that same time period, and they do these incredible wow. tunes. And and I I mean I mean McDonald is the feel is so righteous. It's just so oh. right. It's so freaking righteous. I, I, and to me, it's like this. All you guys were, were blessed because whenever that light bulb went on for you, you already had the rudiments in playing this improvisational glory of jazz. And then you were able to incorporate it into the, the pop music. And that's why that music yeah. swung so hard. Yeah, exactly. 
So did no wait a second. Did did Donald and Alan Weisberg both play on that record? Eric Weisberg and Eric oh, Cla- Eric Weisberg, Eric Weisberg like Russell, Russell George. George. I got, this is a, a mercurial album. Mount Airy, it's called. And McDonald's. I I mean, dude, the dude had the. You know, you have was, to send that to me if I can't get it. I'm no, I'm gonna I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring it to you, and I you know I'm gonna get out to L.A. like before the fifth interview to do uh, in person because I realized after doing Indugu last summer, I said, wow, I never knew. Which is brilliant. I love that interview. Thank I you, man. I, you know what? That, that, that you re, That's the point. People say, wow, great knowledge, Indugu. And it's true. But like Rico said, he goes, great interview because it takes, I had, you know, I mean, I was ready for it at that time so that we could do something that was seminal and thank God I did because yeah. I had, you know, life is yeah. fleeting. So I, you know, oh, this really. stuff is like, yeah. I don't know, it's profound. I, I just before we wrap set two, you can you, you've you've used the terms gentleman for Indugu and a great guy. Do you want to yeah. talk a little bit about like, do you remember, uh, you know, crossing paths? With, I mean, because everybody's like, yo, he was on Billy Jean. It's like, yeah, that was like, you know, ten years after his career had already, or fifteen years after his career started. You want to talk about yeah. his legacy as well, a drummer? I mean, the, the... The time that we spent together, the most time spent with Indugo, I'd see him every year at the uh, the Pro Drum Shop Christmas party. <laughs> but years ago, uh, in the early 2000s or something like that, we uh, we were both invited to play the Cape Breton International Drum Festival, hmm. and uh, that was a weekend. And every every you know there was Bill Bruford and Skip Haddon and Sergio Bellotti. Hmm. I'm forgetting Dom Famularo, uh, Todd Suckerman. There were there was a bunch of drummers. This guy named Bruce Aiken used to put this festival on, which was unbelievable. It was the best festival. It ran ten years and it was in an old theater in in Glace Bay, Nova Scotia, and uh, it was just unbelievable. And and Dugo and I got to spend a lot of time together, hanging out. Uh, during that whole weekend because you would sit in the audience and you would listen to the presenter do his hour clinic or uh, show or whatever and then you'd all go down to the green room and you'd hang out with each other and have a coke and a sandwich and stuff and then you go upstairs and you catch the next one it was a whole weekend of that it was just phenomenal wow so, it was a bit, so just uh, just to be clear uh, i mean it was essentially denny sywell on on the stage by himself doing a clinic or was there other was it multiple multiple rhythm people on there or is it just you know each artist each drum artist would have a, a, a peri- period of time where you just it's just you right i played a lot of tracks uh uh i had tracks that i still do in my clinic you know everything from water world to big band to to mccartney stuff to happy days Delta happy Man. days no 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 none of that <laughs> <laughs> no, no i mean so but, yeah or well-known tracks that I record. Sure, I always sure. play Live and Let Die in, in one of those situations. But I'll, I'll never forget one time there was this kid from Argentina. I can't remember his name, but uh, he's a kid that practiced eight hours a day. I was just going, with 14 pedals and 15,000 cymbals. And, yep. you know, he just did everything yeah. in sight. He was truly amazing. Truly amazing. And Ndugo and I were sitting out in the audience. This kid played for 40 minutes without stopping. He put his sticks down, wiped some sweat off, blew his nose, and played for another 20 minutes without stopping. 
And at one of those periods of time, I looked over and Dugo, he was asleep. <laughs> exactly. I, I love it. I freaking, you know, it's like, it, he, yeah. I love it. Just he, he, for me, it would be staring at the wall after a while, you know, but, but yeah, yeah. I'm with that. <laughs> He's sleeping. The kid was, the kid was amazing. Well, sure. I mean, you know, and and sat there with his mouth open, and then we half of us just took a nap. And Dugu's taking a nap. That's the greatest. That's one of the greatest stories of all. But I mean, in in, what like his he started. uh, I don't know. I just I, I find sometimes I just listen to some of this jagged stuff that uh milestone was putting out in the early 70s and and i i can't even really under figure out what he's even playing but the the his attack his approach is so subtle and so groove oriented it's and it's so it's so unique man and everything was so and that's what he was said he goes every time i wanted to put something unique on a track if he was in the studio i wanted to make it seminal and make it unique and I just, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I, 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 I'm pained that he's left us, but I'm also, um, I'm, I'm humbled to have connected with him uh, twice on the radio and yeah. in person because uh, he did, he was a cat who was expanding music vocabulary at all times. And he openly admitted, Absolutely. I was tired of being a starving genius. I mean, he just, he, he said, I, he said, I never had a problem uh, advocating for myself. I wanted to get paid. I didn't want to be broke. He knew how to advocate for himself uh, in a in a in a in an industry where, like you know, uh, there's a lot of ri- there's a lot of shysters and there's a lot of ripping off. Uh, and Dugu never got ripped yeah. off. Yeah, good for him, man. Yeah, he was he, he like I said, he was just a real gentleman. He'd never say a bad word about anybody. He might take a nap in the middle of the plan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was he spoke volumes without words, man. I mean, this is uh, I'm gonna all right. Listen, I'm gonna mail you. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna get you a, a Mount Airy with McDonald. You better if you can't oh, yeah, if you okay. can't dig up the Donna Keith album, I'll mail that to you as well because it's it, it's so worthy. I mean, this is so worthy. I'm almost certain that I have that. I have a I have a box of records that I played on with some. I don't know. I don't. My archives is definitely not complete but that's that's in that box of records i i just saw it i just saw it recently when i got my old vinyl out because i bought a new turntable but there's a few things in my archives that uh i've been looking forever i've been looking for uh four days that i did with with veronique Sanson at the paris olympia theater with a small orchestra and Stephen stills they were married at the time oh and that was recorded and filmed for ORTF. So I've been, I've been I've been in touch with Vero, and she doesn't seem to have any of the footage or or audio from from those shows. I wanted to have some of that for my archives. And then the other thing is, uh, in 1974, I think it was the Tommy Opera live in London at the Rainbow Theater in Finsbury Park. Uh, they put the London Symphony Orchestra, and they had a rock and roll rhythm section. There were two guys from Japan, from Australia that played guitar and bass, and Rick Wakeman and I were. We filled in the rhythm section. Oh my gosh, the, this is the insane! The front line of this opera was people like Keith, uh, um, Keith Moon played Dirty Uncle Ernie, Clinton <laughs> played the Acid Queen, Roger Daltrey, of course, David Essex, and they had all of this uh, multitude of stars out. 
front line and we give three or four performances uh, with of that Tommy Opera live with the symphony. And I don't have any, uh, for my archives, I'd pay. I would pay money to have one of these uh, recordings of one of those nights. It was just... So you, was I just want to be clear, though. I, this it was It was only stuff that the stuff that could be attained would only be recordings off the soundboard. It was never pressed for record or anything like that. I don't think so. I have no idea. They must have filmed and recorded that stuff, though. I mean, you don't have the London Symphony and then all the cast of characters out front and not archive it. And the guy who put it on, Lou Reisner, was this American producer. The record came out before that. It had that big steel ball on the cover, like a ball bearing that took up the whole cover and so there was an album and then he wanted to do a live performance and I was in town doing some recording with Joe Cocker or Donovan or one of the, and he said oh let me maybe he even flew me over for that I'm not sure how, how that worked it's a long, long time ago but uh, uh, yeah I think my wife said he flew us over he just actually wanted to come back and I had some things to wrap up in London before we left there completely. So it was it was one of those things that I, I would really love to have that for my archive. That's the second thing. And the third thing is Jeff Carroll and I did double drums on a couple of tracks for a Steve Marriott album from Humble Pie. It was a solo album he was doing at A&M years ago. And the album was never released. And I, I would, I would, just die to have a copy of some of that with Jeff and I playing together. It was amazing. Well, I, I guess I got my I guess I got my my uh, work cut out for me. Um, I also, I mean, you, for your archives, do, do you do you have those uh, Jerry Merle Great American Music Hall tapes? Because I, there's nothing online about that, man. No, I don't have anything from that. But those you days, you, were, you were there. Yeah, oh yeah, definitely. It was it was great fun to it. We did Mary. Uh, what's her name? Mary uh, Peter Paul and Mary. Uh, what's her name? Mary. Uh, I don't know. Remember that? We did a week at the boarding house in in San Francisco too. That was a trip. That was really great fun. Wow! And so you okay? Uh, so I I, I mean, we anyway. I just uh, listen. The longer we talk, the more I'm going to remember stuff that I don't have. That's good. That's good. No, and and listen, I, man, it, it's it's always. Thank you for making my day. I'm gonna go and play drums with some buddies right now and just do my best Denny Sidewell impersonation. But yeah, let's just uh, let's just stay in touch and, uh, and and we'll do another interview in a couple of weeks. Well, let me let me before we hang up today. Let me tell you, my my new record is coming out probably in April on a new label called Porto Valley Records, QVR Records. And uh, we finally came up with a title for it. It's called Boomerang. <laughs> what? Okay. Boomerang. Because you throw a boomerang out and it comes back to you. So I started as a jazz guy. I took a, a big turn way out there, and then it's coming back to the jazz world. And uh, this record, as you know, it's Joe Bag and John Cudini and I, it's a magical trio, and it's you're going to hear something. There's nothing on the jazz market anything remotely like this record i'm so proud of it it's probably the best it is the best record i've ever made in my life and uh i reached deep into the well we all 
reached deep into the well for this performance on this record. There's a lot, a bunch of great notes and play by everybody. So, are you? Uh, do you have uh, just also? Do you have any live? Are you going to be promoting it with some live gigs? Well, I'm sure. Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, did that? I want to. I want to come out and, and, and capture that band, blow it out to the world, man, because that's righteous stuff, yeah. especially well, because. If, Jake, I, lo- I love talking to you so much. I'm going to send you uh, a pre-release of that album. Just one of the one of the. Uh, I'll make you a CD and I'll just pop it in the mail, or send it to you through WeTransfer. I'll send you some files. So yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I would love to. I mean, is it is, is there a lot of original stuff on there too? Yes, yeah, half there's twelve songs. Six of them are are three John and three Joe. And then the other six are people like Moacir Santos and Hector Camargo's Mariano. Oh, what a boomerang album, Moacir Santos. I mean, you're going deep into the well for that. Oh, yeah. Oh. No. And dur- during the recording of this album, we had three rehearsals, and we were actually reading ch- charts during the recording because it, the the music is so challenging, and uh, it's it's really something I'm so proud of. Well, I'm just I'm proud that we got set two in the books here and uh, didn't cover any old ground and uh, we'll we'll do it again, my friend. Great to hang with you, Sywell. My pleasure, Jake. I, I love talking to you because you bring the best out of me. <laughs> no, I, you know, it's always about inspiring. Thank you for your support and uh, and and love and uh, and uh, we'll, we'll do it again soon, man. Much love to you. Thank you, man. Right. Same to you, man. Peace. Have Bye. a great day, man. Peace. Bye-bye. Bye. Part two in the books with Denny Sywell, an incredible drummer who boomeranging from Astro Gilberto to uh, Rick Danko to now back to his roots in jazz with Joe Bag. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow with a couple of other really, really, really heavy drummers. Uh, well, one drummer is uh, um, Harvey Hughes, and then uh, of course the uh, the veritable poet Wavy Gravy. Until then, peace. Yeah.